Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, thank you for this morning so far. And as we come now to the text, we pray that it would be so much more than just words on a page or thoughts that I've had this week that you now give me the opportunity to share with these friends. May this be so much more. May this be a time when your name is lifted up, when the scriptures um, pierce the heart, mine and ours together. May the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, many of you know uh, that last week I had to go out of town on kind of an emergency. Uh, if you don't know about this, don't feel bad. That's okay. Uh, I just want to shed some light on that for a minute, and this will kind of tie into where we're going with the text this morning. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, who I love very much, who've been here to visit, uh, live in Houston, and my dad got sick. Uh, he's been sick over the last couple of months, uh, more precisely within the last month or so. So uh, he went in uh, to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, which is, uh, in my opinion, the greatest cancer hospital in the world. No disrespect to the ones that are here. Uh, and he was diagnosed with lymphoma. Uh, so his particular type of lymphoma, if you're into that kind of thing, is uh, non-Hodgkin's Burkett's lymphoma, which is actually uh, often a pediatric cancer. It's more rare in adults. And when it happens in adults, it's very aggressive and uh, can be very, very quick moving. It was quick moving, but uh, because MD Anderson's an amazing place, the doctors and the care team there caught it pretty quick. Uh, any of you that have walked through a battle with cancer know that catching it is just one of many, many, many steps. So uh, he was diagnosed on a Tuesday. They admitted him that day. And then on Friday, so a week ago Friday, uh, he had a significant nosedive. Um, there were some systems that were already kind of fragile, frail because of the cancer. His kidneys were a mess. His liver was a mess. And so all of that kind of amounted to him really going into shock. Uh, so I received all this news on Friday morning, got home, talked with my wife, uh, and by my second cup of coffee, I had a plane ticket booked to go down to Houston. So I left. Uh, it was really weird to leave and not have a return ticket. Has anybody ever been through that, where you just buy a one-way and you, you don't know when you're coming home? It's kind of strange. Um, I went down to Houston, and I was basically at MD Anderson from Friday until Thursday. Um, so my family is kind of all in Texas, Houston, Austin primarily. We all kind of just converged on the hospital. And we figured out a rotation where we were going to be with my dad 24-7. We were going to be in the room with him to support him, to support my mom. Uh, and it was a lot. Um, even just sharing it now, I'm, I am not back on my normal page yet. It's going to take a while to get there. Um, to watch my family rally around my dad was incredible. A lot of you know my dad, so it's, it was really cool to be able to share at a distance, like, this is what's going on. And I knew the guys from Malibu were praying for him because we all spent that time together. And I knew our small group was praying for him. And uh, people in this church called my wife and said, hey, we're bringing you dinner. Like, here it comes, <laughs> which is just really incredible. So uh, at a distance, uh, I was hearing about all this, and I was super grateful um, please don't feel bad if you didn't know or if you didn't have the chance to make a meal. You're like, I can make brownies. I wanted to make brownies. It's okay. Like, you know now, and, and you can be praying now. Um, and the support that uh, has been offered uh, to me and my family has been really great. Uh, so thank you. Uh, 
My dad's not out of the woods yet. He's still in the ICU uh, at MD Anderson today. Uh, there's some big milestones he needs to get through to get out of ICU. Uh, chemo seems to be working pretty well. It seems to be doing what it's supposed to do and taking down the cancer. Um, so there is hope. And his vitals are getting better. The, all the numbers and the little machines that go boop, they're making the boop sound, and it's a good boop, like not a bad boop. Um, but there's a long road to go. And you know this, all of us know this, from places where we have been, where there's been a significant crisis, where there's been something happening to you, and you're going, wait, i got to get on a plane today, or I, what do you mean I don't have a job anymore? Whatever crisis you or I may have faced, One of the things that happens to us inherently all the time in crisis is we start kind of grasping and feeling for anything that feels like hope. And we may not use the word hope because unfortunately I think that can kind of become a trite word in crisis. But a hopeful thing, if you're in the medical profession, you know you have this sacred task of delivering to families and patients that you serve a word of hope. Or a word of optimism, or like, hey, we see these results, and things seem to be getting better. Absent the Christian framework, those things that can offer us hope, we make them into way too much. Like, we make every test result into this huge thing, or we make every sale in our job that we feel kind of insecure, and we make it the biggest thing. Or any sort of little positive thing in our marriage when we're going through a crisis, we make it big, 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 big. Absent following Jesus Christ, because following Christ allows everything else to kind of take the right size and shape in our lives. And I share all that because I felt that this week. I felt that as I sat next to my dad's bed. And this was so great. Like, whenever I was in the room with my dad, my job was to hold his hand and talk to him. So I ended up, like, reading him the newspaper. Or um, I got to practice one of my dream jobs someday, which is to be a baseball commentator. So we'd watch baseball and I would relay to my dad, like, here's what's going on, and so-and-so's on first, and here comes the cutter, you know. You, when you look for hope in your own crisis, we need to be careful that we don't right-size the things that can give us a little bit of hope. But what we really need is the hope that will extend beyond the crisis. Does that make sense? Get through the tests, get through the chemo, get through this. That, that's great. That's important. Get the new job. Find a pathway into health in your marriage. Wonderful. What I want to talk about and what I think the text talks about today, and this is why this text was so encouraging to me this week as I studied it in nooks and crannies at MD Anderson Cancer Center, was that there is a hope that we must hold on to that goes beyond the crisis that we're in. There is a hope that you and I must hold on to that goes beyond whatever crisis we are in. And if you're not in a crisis right now, take notes for when you are because it's coming. So this is the book of Ezekiel. It's our last sermon series in it. We're talking about hope. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, hope is hard to find. It's a rather scathing indictment of the people of Israel. But the end of the book does end with some words, some glimpses of hope. And so we're going to talk about that today. There's an outline in your bulletin, so you'll kind of know where we're headed. We're going to do a quick review where we've been, and then we're going to talk about these two really kind of key weapons, resources in this search for hope, a new heart and a new king, okay? So first, we're going to start off with where we have been. We're going to get to Ezekiel 36 in a minute, but first, we've got to go back in time a little bit. What do, what do you need to know as we wrap up Ezekiel? Ezekiel is a weird book, 
Like, there are some crazy prophecies and visions in it. The prophet Ezekiel gets asked to do some really strange things by God. What, what is this book about? If you go back to Deuteronomy, there's this chapter, chapter 7, that offers a glimpse into what the people of Israel were supposed to be. So much of Ezekiel is about the people of Israel not being who they're supposed to be. So you have to go back to Deuteronomy and kind of figure out who they were supposed to be. And the way I would summarize it is, the people of Israel were meant to be a people of grace. They were meant to get grace, understand grace more deeply than any other people on the face of the earth. What does that mean? God says to the people of Israel, I chose you. I picked you. And the Israelites kind of scratch their head and go, okay, why, why would you pick us? And before they can even get there, God says to them, it wasn't because you were the smartest. It wasn't because you were the strongest. It wasn't because you were the biggest nation. You were, in fact, one of the smallest nations. The reason God chooses Israel is because he loves Israel. He loves them. They're his people. That's who they're supposed to be. That's who their identity is supposed to be. It's not how great they are or strong they are or their military power. It's that their life together is founded on the love of God. He chose them. And that's the state of the state for a little while. Remember, they are uh, slaves in Egypt. They're led to the promised land. They're in this great season of freedom. Maybe you can relate to this a little bit. Stuff's going right. They've got gas in the tank. They've got money in the bank. Everything's going great. And then... Israel is led by a series of corrupt, divisive leaders who don't care. They're bad shepherds. And eventually, civil war breaks out. They're split in two, right? They're these two kingdoms for a little while in the history of Israel. One kingdom basically goes away, is assimilated by the Assyrian Empire. They go bye-bye. And this last remnant is who Ezekiel is ministering to. That's who Ezekiel is talking to. The people that are left, the people that still remember God, that still remember Moses, that still remember the Old Testament, they're tiny, they're small, they're not powerful now, but that's who's left. And in the midst of all of this, Ezekiel has to care for these people, bring them hard truths from God, and Israel goes through one of their worst moments as a nation together when the temple is destroyed in 586 BCE. That's their equivalent of 9-11, but worse, as if you can get worse than 9-11. They experience that. The temple's destroyed. The center of their worshiping life, who they are as a community belonging to God, is destroyed. So they're at the bottom of the barrel. They cannot get any lower than this moment. Like Elizabeth was sharing about her experience, they are torn down. They're going to get built back up again. But we need to appreciate how torn down they are in this moment. Otherwise, when we start talking about hope, it's not going to really mean that much to us. We need to appreciate how broken down they are. And the worst thing that they've had to face in this is the realization that they've given over their lives to idols, to things that should never hold their hope, should never contain their hope properly. They've given themselves over and over and over again to worshiping other gods. Have we not experienced this in our own crises? There's that great line, any port in a storm. Any port in a storm. Anywhere feels safe when you're in the middle of a crisis. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe the people of Israel aren't that so different from you and I. Maybe the things you've been chasing after are not working. Maybe it's your job. And you, you were counting on this, you were banking on this, you, you, man, you worked it so you could get this job, and lo and behold, it's a job. Or you were waiting to make a certain amount of money, make sure that your savings account looked a particular way, make sure that this was set up, make sure you had this in your retirement account, and you got there and you went, really? 
That's it? I mean, one of the hardest things that ever happens in our lives is when we get what we want. Because then we have to realize like, oh, this actually is a really, really hard job. Or, wow, being married is a lot of work. Or you name it. So I'm saying all this because we can make idols out of these things that we say we want really bad. I'll be happy when I get this thing. I'll be satisfied when I get this thing. And we long for it, which feels like agony. But then when we actually get it, we find out that it's still disappointing. So what we need is not more stuff or more rules or more self-control or more discipline. This is where we're getting into part two, the new heart. What we need is a new heart. Because we need a new ability to relate to the things that we would otherwise say, there's my hope, there's the thing that I'm counting on, I'll feel better when I have this. If we can have a new heart, then we can have the hope that transcends the crisis that we're in. So turn with me to Ezekiel 36, because this is the offering that God brings to his people. They need a new heart. They are so far gone, they are so lost in the wilderness, it's not going to be good enough for them to make a cosmetic adjustment. They need a fundamental change. The great news of today's text is that no one, no crisis, will ever make you so far gone that God's redemption can't touch you. The Israelites were so bad. They were in such an awful place. And God's redemption touched them and redeemed them. You are never so in your crisis that you can't get out of it with the help of God. So let's, this is the text that Josh read for us. I'm actually going to ask that um, the New Living Translation of verse 26 come up on the screen. So in Ezekiel 36, the passage about the new heart, this is a famous passage. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. So listen to this. I'll read this for us. And I will give you a new heart. Remember, God's speaking this to the people of Israel. They have broken hearts right now. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. This verse is just amazing to me. A stony, stubborn heart. You want to picture that with me for a, picture, for a minute? Picture a slab of concrete. Picture something gray and hard and lifeless and impenetrable. This actually ties into something that Jesus talked about often in his ministry. He talked about hardness of heart. If you just Google Jesus' hardness of heart, there's a million verses where he's talking about this. Hardness of heart is something that was not unfamiliar to the people then, and it's something that we get now. And this is, where, this is kind of the, why do we need to talk about a new heart? Like, why does this matter? Because every one of us has places in our lives where the hardness of heart is so precise. A hardness of heart moment is when you choose to turn your heart away from someone else or something else that needs you. When you actively say, like, I can't deal with that right now. And there are times and places for us to be able to do that that's healthy. There's there's the boundaries conversation. I get all that. Hardness of heart is a repetitive behavior when we continually turn ourselves away from the needs of others. I don't want to feel that. I can't deal with that. I can't respond to that. It, It limits our ability to empathize and come beside those who are in need in our lives. And... It's a conscious turning away from the needs of others and it's an inability to slow down and to feel what's actually happening in a moment. To actually possess your wits about you emotionally to say, look, this person that's in my office, this person that I work with that reports to me, they're crying their eyes out and my hardness of heart tells me, get them out of my office. But the part of me that wants to follow Jesus Christ says, let me listen to this person. Let me sit with them. Let me see if I can give them something of what God has given to me. 
As you can imagine, I had a lot of time to sit and think this past week as I'm sitting there in the hospital room. Baseball wasn't on every day. And one of the things that I was reflecting on based on this passage was like, where are the places in my life where I have a really hard heart? Where I just, I picture a garage door shutting, right? I picture just slamming down. I don't want to be wrapped up in some emotion right now. I don't want to deal with this. Oftentimes it's toward people that I don't enjoy, that I, I tolerate, right? And tolerance in like the not so fun sense of the word. Uh, I have a litany of people that have kind of hurt me in my past. I have a great deal of hardness of heart in those situations. If I have to deal with somebody in that setting, if I think about them, or if I'm just reminded of them somehow, those are places where the hardness of heart really kicks in for me. My suggestion, if you want to kind of do a test for yourself this week about where you may be experiencing hardness of heart, go through your phone. And look through the names of the people in there. And when you get to somebody's name where you just, you just keep going, I don't want to deal with that person. I don't want to remember that. I don't want to think about that. That's hardness of heart. I would challenge you to do that and to see if you can't find somebody where you go, Mm-mm, nope, not for me. And why do we need to deal with that? We need to deal with that because if our hearts are hard toward one person, then our hearts are just going to get harder and harder and harder until we deal with that. Until we hold that out to God. So how's your hardness of heart, church? It doesn't mean you gotta take everybody's needs. It doesn't mean your heart needs to bleed and grieve for everyone. What it means is when Jesus puts somebody in front of you, are you willing to roll up to them and to be with them and to feel what they feel as best you can? Otherwise, if we just keep moving, I think we're missing opportunities to experience the grace of God in our hearts. When you come up to it this week, if you do that thing with your phone, if you think about someone that you have hardness of heart toward, let me just offer you a thing to think about and pray for. If your heart is like my heart in those situations and you're just like a slab of concrete, like picture like a gray busted up slab of concrete. One of our neighbors just got a new driveway. So I'm thinking of how the concrete got turned over and tore up and pulled out and there's rebar sticking out of it and that's brown and the the slab of concrete's gray. Picture that as your heart. When you're with somebody this week you don't like. When your annoying coworker sits down at your desk and wants to talk to you again. Think about your heart being hard. And if that visual of that slab of concrete helps you, then picture the other thing, the heart that God longs for each of us to have, something that's soft, something that's that's warm, that that can be touched, that's, that's penetrable. Concrete's impenetrable. What would it take for our hearts to be more penetrable, more open to what God wants to do? Lord, give me a tender and responsive heart this week. I think that's one of our takeaways from this text. Lord, give me a tender and responsive heart. I don't know how that's going to play out in your life, but man, if each of us found an opportunity to have our hearts be more tender towards someone in our life this week, I think our world desperately needs that. And I think us, this church, we are the group of people that God wants this for this week. So that's a new heart. The people of God, they're so messed up, they're so broken, they need not just a new plan, a new set of rules, they need new hearts. They need to go from a concrete slab to something tender and responsive. So now they've got the new heart, or they're working on it, it's coming together for them. They need a guide. They need someone to show them the way. And this is where Ezekiel 37 is so helpful. So turn one page over, this is crazy, it's the same 
verse numbers, which is kind of fun. We read 36, 24 through 28. Now we're going to read 37, 24 through 28. I didn't plan that. That's just how it worked out. And this is where this new king comes into the picture. Listen to this. Starting in verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them. This is is down the road. This is when Israel's in a better place than they are right now. This is when healing has come. The scripture says, and they shall all have one shepherd. How many shepherds, church? One shepherd. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. They shall live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, in which your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children shall live there forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will bless them. I will multiply them. I will set my sanctuary among them forevermore. That's important. We'll come back to that. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And then the nation shall know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is among them forevermore. So they got, they're working on the new heart. The new heart, you can't just snap your fingers and it's there. They're working on it. It's coming into their life together. Where is this playing out? The text, I think, is telling us that this is playing out in their home, in their daily life. In verse uh, 37, this will go back up on the screen. The text says this, I will make my home among them. I will make my home among them. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to King David that one day a king would come from the line of David, and he would never leave, and he would never have more things to do than he could take care of. He would always be able to be with the people, to set up his home in the people by being one with the people. I will make my home with them. The Hebrew word being translated there as home is mishkam, which is the same word for the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Remember, when Israel was in exile, they're wandering around in the desert. God says to them, you need to worship me. And they go, we should have a mobile church. Right? So they set up a tent in the middle of the desert and they worship God in this tabernacle. The point of all this is that God has given his people new hearts. Now he's giving them a place to kind of pour out that work, that change in their lives. And it is with the king who is their tabernacle, who is their place of worship. Their place of worship is no longer a place, it is a person. It is no longer tied to a piece of land. It is no longer confined by walls. It's a new kind of king. It's not a king that needs a throne. It's not a king that needs palaces and temples. It is God shrinking himself down in a human form, adjusting everything about himself to make himself available to us. And this happens to a people in captivity and in exile. That the promise of God comes, I will be with you. My home will be where you are. So my question for you, church, is where are you in exile right now? Where do you feel like you're, you don't get it? You're lost. It's, it's a strange place right now. Maybe you got a new job and you, you can't even find where the coffee is, right? Let alone how to do your job. That's a place of exile. That's a place of wondering. That's a place of trying to figure out who am I? What am I supposed to do? May I just encourage you to say that the king is here in your new job. Maybe you're in a new relationship or maybe you're in a season in your life where a relationship has gone away. 
For the first time, you don't have a relationship. It's your spouse. It's someone you loved. It's, it's a relationship you had high hopes for. It stinks. You're discouraged. You're wondering. May I encourage you and say, the king is here. The king is with you in your exile. Maybe, like in my family right now, you're in this place where you're trying to figure out, what does cancer mean? To my family, what does it look like to be in this new place, this new season, this new land where we're trying to walk with my dad and walk with my mom and try to make sense of all this? That feels like exile to me, church. But the king is here. The king is here. That's the promise from the text. And let me assure you and hear this. God promises to make his home with us when we are in exile. If you're waiting for exile to be over, the king is here. You don't need to wait. God promises to come and be with us in our exile, in our wilderness wanderings. So don't wait for the exile to be over. Whatever season you're in, whatever crisis you're facing, the king is here. Will you say that with me? The king is here. Say it like you mean it. The king is here. Write that down. The king is here. Maybe that's your simple prayer this morning. Maybe when you go to that new job that is so confusing and so bewildering, the minute you sit down at your desk, you grab a post-it note and you write down, the king is here, and you stick it on your screen and you look at that when you're discouraged and you look at that when you're tired and you look at that when you feel lost. Maybe you put it in your car. Maybe you put it uh, somewhere where you know you're going to see it every day. Maybe you put it next to where your kids' backpacks are so you remember that when you're trying to parent them and it's just so hard. The king is here. The king is here. Israel got totally off the map. And my challenge to us as we think about that is, do you have people in your life that will remind you of who Jesus is and where he is in your life when you start to go off the map, when I start to go off the map? Are you in a small group? Do you have people speaking Christ's life into your life? Are you part of a Bible study? Are you with men? Are you with women who can challenge you? How's our hearts? When we face these, these moments where we know our hard-heartedness is just kicking right up again, the garage door is slamming down, we're starting to feel like a lump of concrete, how would it work for you in those moments to say, God, I, I feel it. My heart's getting really hard right now. I don't want to deal with this person. I don't like thinking about them. Would you replace my heart of stone with the heart of flesh? Would you help me be tender and responsive to the person in front of me today? Not everybody, not every situation you've ever been in where there's been conflict, but just the person in front of you, just for today. Lord, give me a heart of flesh. And if you're in exile, what's that phrase I want you to remember? The king is here. Say it with me. The king is here. Write that down. Put it somewhere where you can remember it. Pray that for yourself, for people you love. The king is here. Are you listening for his voice? Are you hoping for his comfort? Are you putting your hopes, like so many people are going to do in my family situation, my dad's situation, our hope is in the next test, our hope is in this next round of chemo, our hope is in this, our hope is in that. That's all fine and good. But my heart, and I think my family's heart, I know my dad's heart longs, for the kind of hope that's going to transcend cancer, that's going to get to the other side of cancer, and there's more to hope for, and there's more good stuff ahead of us than bad stuff behind us, amen? Because the king is here. Because the king is here. That king is a king for people with hard hearts, like you and me. 
That king is the king who meets us in our exile, who meets us in our messed up relationships, in our disorientation, in our jobs, who meets us in, our, in the cancer ward. That is the king who, meet with, who meets with you and with me today. We can't do it all, but he can. So if you want the king to be here, would you join me as we close, as we pray, and as we step out in faith? The king is here, church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your power and your might and how it's not abstract, it's personal. How you've called us to be a people who don't just know you as an idea, but know you in our hearts. And so wherever we need to claim this truth, God, that you are here, the king is here, in these moments as we pray together, would you help us picture just one place or one relationship or one situation that we may face this week where we need that word. The king is here. Would you help us go there now in our imaginations and would you come with us and help us picture something better because we know the king is here. Lord, as we uh, rise in a moment and join our voices together to sing, and then to pray, and then to be sent forth. Would you help us to remember exactly what you want us to remember? Would you change us and make us into people who will bear the hope of Christ into the world this week? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.